I was riding into work into here at the Avon one day this week, and as I sometimes do, before I pulled out, I put on a playlist on YouTube and so I could listen to music on the way on my phone through the speakers. And that annoying thing that sometimes happens when you listen to a playlist and you don't have the paid subscription is that ads pop up. And this one particular ad was just way unreasonably long that because I'm driving, I'm just hostage sitting here having to listen to this ad. And it's, it was about how to sing better for some, which goes to show you that Google's algorithms are not entirely accurate um, at the market they're trying to reach. Um, or YouTube's, that is. But it was going on and on and on and on and on about how great your life could be if you could sing really great and do these things. And then after it seemed like an eternity, then the inevitable line, and for only $159, you can purchase this you know, package, which comes with all of these things and whatever. Right, you're just, you don't really want to help my life. You're just wanting to sell me something. And there's a sense in which we are moving back into the book of Romans after we have been in other places for the holidays. Uh, We have covered 14 and a half chapters, and we have come to this break where Paul's going to change gears and shift out of the letter. And we're going to learn something that Paul has another agenda other than the things that he is saying, and he's actually looking for money, and that he wants support um, from this church. Um, and he has, he has a desire to rally them up and to um, recruit them to join his ministry. Uh, but what we're going to find is that this is actually um, a good news, and this is part of the good news that he will have for us uh, as, he, as in just another couple chapters we get to end this letter. So I'm going to read our passage, Romans 15, 14 to 21, and then I'll pray and we will dive in. This is God's word. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who never, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, the words that I say this morning and that we all hear are only words unless you empower them and you work through them. So we ask that you would, in your spirit, teach us through your word this morning uh, to pick us up where we are down and to draw us closer to you and your purposes, even through this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What I want to talk about this morning is satisfaction. 
That's a theme that I saw running through this passage and studying it, in that three different times in three different ways, he says something along the lines um, of the fact that he is satisfied in the labor that he has put in. Verse 14, he says that he is satisfied in the fruit of his labor there in the Roman church. Verse 17, he says he's proud of his work. In verse 19, he says that he has fulfilled uh, the ministry that he has been handed by God. And I think that this is, uh, what a tantalizing subject this is, to talk about satisfaction and to reflect um, on what it would be like to be in Paul's shoes and to look back on our own lives and say that where God has put us and what he has called us to in all the different forms, that we're satisfied, that it has been good, that what the purposes that God has had for us have been carried out and we can look back with a sense of pleasure and reward on that. And I think this invites us to ask, would we say that's true currently of our lives? Uh, are we satisfied? Is there a sense of pride in what God, where God has put us? And what would it take for us to be able to say that, to say that we have fulfilled God's calling on our lives and that we are, we are satisfied? And the reason, this is touching into one of those universal human experiences, which is that we are all trying to be satisfied every single day in one way or another. And this is not necessarily completely um, a result of the fall. This was, even Paul is saying here that he's getting satisfaction from very good things. Um, There was work to be done in the garden before the fall came. But there's a problem And that is, I don't think we are always fully sure of the criteria for how to look at our lives and how to be able to say that what God has called me to do in where he has put me, that I have done it and I have fulfilled exactly that. I have fulfilled the ministry that he's given me. I have fulfilled the conditions to be able to say that my life has been worthwhile. And being able to say that Um, coming up with the criteria by how we would even unpack that question and be able to say it is a little bit difficult. If I've learned one thing of my uh, entire life career of sitting and listening to sermons is that you can't preach a sermon about satisfaction without mentioning Mick Jagger, so I'm going to mention him in passing and put that to bed so we can all be satisfied, and then I'll move on. so, and this is not knocking any, any sermon we've ever heard, um, but we actually don't really know what that song is about. So it is not actually about trying to just live it up and however we want and trying to get some kind of satisfaction. He's saying things like, I'm driving in my car and this voice comes on the radio and it's telling me how white my shirts can be. And that this is a kind of a critique of consumerism and that the voices, these other criteria that are just being dumped all the time, of saying that this is what it takes to be satisfied, this is what I have to have, and that this is just madness, like to live in this environment with all of these other criteria being dumped upon us. I think it is more in line with what uh, we're trying to get at here. So now that I've mentioned that and shown that while we might have become Humanly speaking, excellent exegetes of the Bible. We have not fully arrived at being exegetes of rock and roll yet, and the arts that are common to to all people. Maybe we can 
improve upon. But I want to I want to put Mick Jagger to the side and quote Jackson Brown instead, one of my other heroes. Um, he's got a song called Bright Baby Blues, and he says this in the beginning. I've been sitting down by the highway, down by the highway side. Everybody's going somewhere, riding just as fast as they can ride. I guess they've got a lot to do before they can rest assured their lives are justified. And then later on he goes on to say, but no matter where I am, I can't help thinking I'm just a day away from where I want to be. I think these are words that really tap into what it is like to be a human. Uh, To wonder what are the criteria by which we can look at our lives and say that we should be satisfied um, with who we are and what we have done. And that it is a, all really it is a never-ending process of running and chasing and chasing and trying to arrive at that point by finding whatever criteria, changing them up so that we can be satisfied in who we have made to be. So here's what I want to do this morning. I've got two points. The second is uh, two short points. Um, But I just first want to look at what are Paul's criteria for evaluating um, a satisfied life. That in the face of this, he's coming on the scene and he's saying that I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with who I am and what God has called me to do. And he is actually using this as a, as a way of recruiting other people uh, who have different callings in a different place to participate um, in this drama that God is all about uh, in life in general. So what is Paul's criteria for evaluating his life? How can he say this? And then we're going to look at two possibilities that when we put on Paul's criteria, um, what possibilities is that going to open up for us? And the two things there are going to be both boldness on the one hand and humility on the other hand. So let's start here in the first point. What is Paul's criteria for evaluating his life whereby he can say these things that he is satisfied? And what we get here, if we'll look here in verse 14, and sorry, 15, he says that he's written some things that he's, after he said that he is proud of the Roman church and the fruit that's come there, he's saying that he's written at some point very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given him by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in a priestly service of the gospel of God. And I want to put to the side the particular aspect of him being called to be an apostle and a church planner. We're going to talk about that in the third point. But I want to hear just talk about this general sense as that Paul, a minister, is writing to all other ministers, all other members of the people of God, uh, because there is something in common that is uh, common to all of them. And this is what he has been unpacking in this letter all to this point that he's drawing on, drawing on. And that is that Paul is what he is for one reason alone, and that is because the grace of God that has invaded his life, and because God picked him out, and God made him his own, and God gave him a purpose. None of it came from Paul. None of it came from Paul's merit. None of it came from Paul's talents. For all the things we know, Paul probably wasn't even a great speaker, but yet he was called to do that uh, time and time again. Paul is what he is because of the grace of God that was lavished on him. And he has just spent 
chapters and chapters and chapters unpacking this. That this message that he is preaching, that he is like a priest of, that he is caring for and he is spreading out to all places, is that the people who were lost, who were down, who were far away, who had no hope, who had no hope of fulfilling anything on their own, that God would pick them out and he would put upon them not only through the atonement of Jesus Christ that he would clear their sins, but he would, in the act of obedience of Jesus, bestow his unmerited favor on these people. The thing that drives Paul in everything he does, it doesn't have to do with what is around him. And the criteria is very simple. And it comes down to one person and one person's delight in him. And that is God. It has to do with the audience, with the one who has loved him when he was unlovable, who moved into his life and picked him out and said, for whoever you are, I'm going to invade you with my love, even though you don't deserve it. And this comes much more into focus when we remember who Paul is and how he got this ministry in the first place. And that he was, for all of his creativity, he at one point thought that he was fulfilling what was required of him by obeying the law, by being a zealot, by obeying the Old Testament law uh, to every jot and tittle. He was the right um, ethnicity. He came from the right family. All these things. And then in one moment, he was traveling down the road and it's like the light from heaven shined on Paul and everything became clear. And that rather than fulfilling what he is called to do, he has actually been murdering God's people and causing a wreck everywhere he goes. But it is that person that God did not leave in his own sin, but he picked him out and not only cleared his sins, but he said, you are going to be my servant, the one that I am going to give my delight and my favor. And wherever you go, whatever you do, you are going to wear my unmerited favor on you. Paul's one criteria was that he had an audience of one person. And that one person really, really mattered. His life had been so invaded by love. It, re- it redefined everything that he was about. Just to give you an illustration, I went to... Um, somebody's house several years ago and they had this very funny looking dog Um, and I can't remember all the details of what was wrong with this dog but it was a lot Um, so I asked what's the deal with this dog Um, and he said that their children uh, had been asking 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 for a dog for years and years and years and finally they gave in and said we'll get a dog we'll go through the adoption channel we'll look at the photos whatever and all these nice dogs, and there was this one, and if I remember right, it had like three legs. It couldn't really see or hear. It had a massive underbite, so it just like hobbled around funny, and it looked funny. It couldn't do much. But when you saw this dog at his house, it was fluffy, and it was clean, and it was happy. 
that for whatever reason, these children, when they saw this dog, they're like, that is going to be our dog. Like, don't care about all these other dogs. But this dog is going to be a part of our family from here on out. And this dog was still messed up, even from that point on. But this dog was happy because it knew that it was loved. Its life was fully transformed by the, the one who picked it out and the love that was bestowed on it. And this is it. Paul has, is so simple. He has one criteria and one criteria alone is the favor of his father, the one who picked him out. And here's what this means for us. We are all desperate for criteria to evaluate our lives, whether they're good enough, whether we are fulfilling what we should be fulfilling in any way. These are being liked. They can be social connections, not just any social connection, but that one person. We all know that there are people that we don't care if they don't like us, but then there are those few people that really, really bother us if we let them down. It could be working a certain number of hours, either big or small. It could be living a countercultural lifestyle to say that we are not going against the flow. We have the gumption that we can stand up and we can do something different. It could be degrees, accolades of any kind. It could be those small compliments in just little ways that we just live for and live to hear. And we need them again and again and again to pick us up. That invite Think about something like raising children. Like we are desperate for some kind of criteria to say we are doing a good job as a parent. Being a parent, that is true. Um, are we living missionally? Are we living radically enough? All those things. We are approaching life from this standpoint of being desperate to find some kind of criteria. And it's like we change them like socks to just find ones that will work. But here's the problem with that is that the world around us is desperate to give us criteria to evaluate our lives so that we can be satisfied. It's a two-way thing. Like, it provides what we want. We want the criteria, and there is a man on the radio telling you how white your shirts can be every single day. And so often it's like we're caught in this perfect storm that leads to anxiety, it leads to fear, it leads to self-doubt, all of these kinds of things that really weigh us down. But if we're paying attention to what Paul is saying, that the things that we are afraid of, that maybe we're not living our lives the way we should, a lot of those might be true. But that is not the main criteria that we are after. We have one criteria, and that is the unmerited favor of God that he bestows on his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is it. That's the criteria. What possibilities does this open up for us that we might not have otherwise? And I want to point out two things about this really quickly. One of the first things I noticed in reading this is Paul worked hard. He's like always on to the next thing. He's using his creativity. It's like, I'm done here. What can I do? What can I go? Uh, What can I accomplish after those things. And maybe it is just a stage of life or whatever, but when I hear somebody with this kind of energy, I just like, I don't need, don't need that in my life right now. What I need is rest. Um, but he doesn't sit idle. 
that there is an excitement about what he is about. There is a newfound energy that he goes and he does and he spreads these things around. But how does he do that? And there's one of these I want to point out in particular. In the beginning, in verse 14, he's saying that he is satisfied about these people, the Romans, that he has written to, um, that they are full of knowledge, able to instruct one, one, one another. But then again, verse 15, he says, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder. Meaning, I've said some hard things that might not have been the easiest things to hear. And let's remember what Paul's doing. He's asking for money. He's asking for prayer. He's asking for people to house him when he travels through Rome on his way to Spain. He needs something out of these people. But somehow, he is not afraid to say the thing that needs to be said. He is not afraid of the consequences of doing the thing that he has been called to do. He like has this fearless boldness because of the audience, because of the love that he has been shown, that he is able to embrace whatever the task he has been given with no fear of failure, with no fear of losing respect in somebody else's eyes. He is free to be bold. I think even just going off my own personal experience, there are two things that just suck the joy out of life. One is failure or frustration in a task. And the other is having some sense of, a la- of disrespect or a lack of respect from other people. And that is when we feel like people don't like us or we feel like the efforts that we are putting out have are met with nothing but failure, it is like the joy of life just evaporates. And it is very easy to become bitter, to become defensive, to become anxious, to try to work, 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 work in every way we can, to put our fingers in the holes in the dike wherever we can so that we don't lose. But Paul is showing here that he has a sense of freedom because there is no other criteria that can touch the one criteria that matters to him. And the effect is those things that will suck the joy out of life, they just don't quite have the same power that they used to have. That the one thing he needs, approval and help and some kind of guarantee of success, it is already there. It is already there on offer and it has nothing to do with him. Second thing though, It gives him the freedom to be bold, but lest we think that this is just an invitation to march around cavalierly um, and wounding people that we think need to be wounded and saying hard things and not worrying about people's feelings or the consequences or anything like that. He also demonstrates something else here as well. In addition to this freedom to be bold, to actually do what he believes God has called him to do without fear, he also has this unbelievable ability to be humble and to not be obsessed with himself of his success or anything else that he might use to define who he is and what he is about. We see this immediately here, one, in just the way that he boasts. He says that um, with any other reason he could have to boast, he boasts about nothing except what Christ has done. He only boasts in the work of Christ, not his own boast, not his own work. 
So it's like that allure of accolades, that allure of uh, position or anything else has gone away. And that what he has is the success of Jesus, the one who loved him and called him and made him his own. That it is his success that truly matters at the end. And it is his success that is tied so tightly with Paul's work that he doesn't have to worry. He is able to be humble. He's able to take down the defenses. He must be a delight to have at dinner parties. This made me think of Brian Regan. You know Brian Regan, the comedian in his sketch about the man on the moon. And, you know, the guy at the dinner party who walked on the moon um, just has the ultimate trump card uh, of any, any boaster around the dinner table. That no matter what, you know, the person boasts about themselves about, then they can just slip in there, well, I've walked on the moon. But it's like, Paul, he must be a delight to have a dinner party because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about those things at all. He's willing to think about these people that he is called to minister to, that what they are capable of doing, that they are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. But there's a last thing about this, too, just thinking about humility, um, which I found fast, both fascinating and, and convicting, to be honest, is that Paul stops his work at points where he says, I am not going to go where Christ has already been made because I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. He says, my work is to be an apostle um, of God to go around and plant these churches. There is other work that needs to be done, but that is not my work. And I feel secure enough to stop, to do my work to share, to release control, to let other people pick up in in other ways and do their own work. He stops. He restrains himself to not have to be everything as he rests in his Father who is in control of it all. I mean, there's in a way, it seems like just the audacity of him to say, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is like two different sides of a region. Um, it's like saying from the East Coast to the West Coast or whatever. And, like, there's not a church in every city in this region. There, not everybody is a believer um, in this whole region. There's more work to do. There's more work that Paul could stay up and be anxious about at night. There are more things that he could grab control over. But because he only serves one, and because of his rest in the unmerited favor of God, he is able to stop. He is able to say, this is not my show. But I have a job to do, and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to stop. And I'm going to go home, and I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm going to share with other people. And let God's work go out in every way that it can. Two very appealing possibilities, I would say, that Paul shows us here from his life that don't come with a personal success. They don't come with personal talent. They don't even come with personal faithfulness. They have everything to do with the audience of one, the one who has loved him when he was down and didn't deserve any help at all. I think as we take this and just digest it, 
and take it home for this morning is that what is at stake here is our own participation in ministry in our place. That we don't have Paul's calling, and we all have different callings. We all live in different places. We work in different places. We have different groups of friends. Um, and this, this would be a great community group conversation that I not want to deal with today, is that how do you know? How do you identify where the limits are? What, are? what are the things that God has called me to do and what he has not called me to do? That would be a great conversation uh, to have with each other. Just want to throw that out there to you. But what's at stake here is the joyful participation in ministry, not just for Paul, but also for this Roman church. And not just for the Roman church, but also Red Mountain Church in Birmingham. And this is not a we-need-to-do-more kind of sermon. It's actually the opposite of that. I think what this is is an invitation to us to look inside and to look at what the anxiety is. What is the darkness? What is the fear that has creeped in and that is weighing us down? that is sucking out the joy, the other criteria that we are searching for that is more enslaving than it is freeing and joy-giving. What is it? And to look at it, and to be aware of it, and to acknowledge it. There's only one way to get out of that trap, and that is love. That is the love of our Father. I don't have a formula for how to do that, but... That the Father who loves us, who calls to himself, for us to be able to cry out in honesty that this is me, this is who I am, and this is my desperation of where I need you. That he loves you, and he will do it in his timing and his own way. He will call you to himself. I want to end with one more illustration. I picked up a little book this week I'd read a long time ago by Henry Nouwen, who was a Catholic priest and academic. Um, he had a, he's not alive anymore, but he had a long, very successful career. Uh, he taught at Notre Dame. He taught at Yale. He taught at Harvard. He said, I could go anywhere. I could teach any group of people. People wanted to hear what I had to say. I had degrees on my wall. I had respect. I had everything. And about the time he turned 50, he looked back over the earlier half of his life and he started thinking about the next half of his life and he had realized that in just the daily push of doing his job, of attending to the urgent, of making people happy, and little by little leaning on those things that have come to define him and give him worth, he had to look at himself in the mirror and say, the only thing that's in my soul is great darkness. That all these things that I'm saying, they are not worth anything because I don't really know what it's all about. And so the advice of a friend, he was invited to go and live in a community for um, mentally ill patients called Larsh. Um, and he lived there and he attended to them and he found out that all of these things that gave him value just went completely out the window in this community. People didn't care about his degrees. If people disagree with his sermons, they would interrupt in the middle of them and ask questions. Everything was changed, and he was brought low, utterly dependent, in a way that the ones he was living amongst also were utterly dependent on other help day to day. But it was actually in that 
that the Lord used to show him the joy of actually being dependent on another, from embracing the posture of dependence so he could actually taste and see the life that Christ provides. That is my pray for, prayer for me, my own heart. That is my prayer for every one of you, um, that the Lord would work powerfully, that he would turn those dark places into joy. So let's pray that the Lord would do that for us this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life um, that he lived and the life that he gave for us. We are weak and we are prone to stray away from that life. So we pray in your spirit as we contemplate your word that you would faithfully bring us to our knees where we are running and you would draw us back that we might find rest for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.